Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm wondering tonight if you feel clean. I don't mean physically. I mean the, the core of who you are. I mean the, the soul that you have, the, the spirit, the immortal part of you. Does it feel clean? Do you feel instead like you have to hide something or you're terribly ashamed or you've been keeping a secret for you know 23 years and it's weighing you down? And I'm wondering about that. I, I think we w- want to feel clean as people. I think we desperately want to feel acceptable. I, I think we want to feel like we're on the right track and that you know, we're making some headway and progress and dealing with our lives in a more creditable way. And uh, I think that's why um, I, have a, I have a friend who every time he makes some sort of moral mistake, he decides to become really fastidious and clean his house because it's his way of demonstrating that he wants to feel that way on the inside. Uh, but but uh, religion is very captivated by this idea. We've invented all sorts of fascinating rituals that would suggest that we're clean on the inside, right? That's why people bathe in sacred rivers. It's why people pay for indulgences. It's why um, we swallow elixirs. It's why people go to sweat lodges. Um, But there are also non-religious rituals that seek to achieve the same ends. Uh, That's why my wife has uh, an uh, an essential oil diffuser. I don't know what it does. It's supposed to be very helpful. Um, But our whole house smells like citrus or pine or a little bit of both. And I guess that's good. Um, Or or that's why you go to a therapist and you, you are able to express things that maybe you couldn't express to other people and have somebody, you know, sift through those feelings with you. But you go there so that you feel lighter, not heavier. You go there to be unburdened, to feel cleaner. Well, John the Baptist wanted people not only to feel clean on the inside, but really to be clean. He wanted people to be clean before God and to have a sense that they could safely approach and they could be really belong to that which is infinite and not have to be frightened and not have to be terrified that they would be hellbound, really. So he wanted people to be well. And uh, today's text dives very deeply into the theology of, uh, of John the Baptist and, uh, and, and his ideas that people could repent and return to the Lord and, and be baptized and receive this cleansing. And I want to speak tonight about four attributes of um, John's understanding of repentance and how people can be made clean, but four attributes of his call to repentance. And uh, I'm going to be speaking about a few scattered verses throughout our passage, so just have your bulletin handy. Let's look at them together. Because the first thing I need to tell you is that the call to repentance is very often a harsh call. The call to repentance is a harsh call. Now, I want you to remember that the opening lines that John has prepared for his audience are designed for his friends. 
and supporters, people that, you know, drove 80 miles to hear him, you know, that, that are in the water waiting to be baptized. These, these are not people who are antagonistic. This is what he says to them in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Okay, it lacks finesse, you know, it lacks finesse. he calls his friends a bunch of copperheads. He's like, you're a collection of copperheads. You are rattlesnakes. You are cobras. You are vipers, meaning you are little slithering entities that that uh, slide around on the ground seeking to to sink your fangs into some victim so that you can toxify and kill that person. And more than that, not only are you that, you are um, representative, at least because of Jewish iconography, of the devil, right? Because in ancient Jewish iconography, this, the serpent is always connected to the, the Satan, the Leviathan, the beast, the, the primordial evil of the world. So it's a little bit of a downer. He's calling his friends a collection of copperheads and, and in some way, representatives of a very dark religion. But this is biblical anthropology. I know it's not a welcomed word anymore, but it's like still there. So we're going to deal with it. Biblical anthropology is, if I could put it in a, in a non-religious way, is something, is something like this. People are not chocolates covered in chocolate. Like, you're not, I'm not. People are beautiful and horrific all at the same time. You are a blending of both. And so there isn't like an aspect of you that ought not to repent, that is just awash in original innocency. I don't care if it's your brain or your emotional life, or your psychology, or how you spend money, or your sexuality, or your understanding of gender, all of it. Like, if you think that because you feel something really strongly within you that that's innately right, that is a crazy impulse, at least from a biblical perspective, because you are not chocolate covered in chocolate. You are a person that is just like me, which means that you're, you know, you're, you got issues, and I got issues. And those issues, uh, to boil it down, mean that we have, in some ways, rebelled against the religion of the creator and instead have turned to worship the self rather than the creator. This is, this is the, the, the religion of the snake in the Old Testament. If you don't want to know what Satanism is, it has nothing to do with horns and pentagrams. Satanism is the adoration of self above everything else. That's Satanism, right? And, so, and that's the natural default religion of the human race. And so therefore, when you hear like lots of people now talk about the need for endless like self-care, and endless self-actualization, just have your ears open for that. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for taking naps. I love them. And that there's not a place for visiting Boca. You should more often than you do. And you probably need a better car. I believe in all those things. At the same time, it can get a little weird. And sometimes it gets so weird that we end up becoming, in a way, the master of our fate and the captain of our soul in an illusory way. It's not real, but we think it's real. And that's the religion of the snake, where the self is, is the thing that is worshipped above all. And so what John the Baptist is doing is he's trying to break us free of that dark religion. He wants us to hit rock bottom to use addiction language. He wants us to hit rock bottom. And so he slams us down to the ground. And he says, you know what? You've got snakes in you. You know, you just carry these buckets of scorpions everywhere you go. And we got to deal with that. We have to deal with that. We can't keep pretending that everything that you feel is wonderful all the time. 
Can't do it. That's off the table. So we have to deal with the real dark uh, um, nature that we all um, contain within. Now, uh, so he offers this uh, call to uh, repentance. Now, by the way, a call to repentance will almost always be received harshly. It doesn't matter how it's presented, by the way. If somebody tells you that you need to repent, you're not going to, like, love it. So they could be John the Baptist and rail against you and, and call you a Satan worshiper, like they could do that. Or they could be really nice. They could say, hey, hi, buddy. Um, I think you're really amazing. And I think you have so many talents. And you have so many good points. I mean, so much is going right in your life. Yeah. And, um, and really, this might just be me. It might be me. I may just be seeing things that aren't really there. But once in a while, and uh, very rarely, once in a while, I see something in your life that might be, if I'm understanding it correctly, a little off kilter. But again, I could be wrong, and you could be like, you could be the second incarnation. And just by saying that and pointing out something that's off in you, you could be like, well, obviously you're an idiot and you don't know what you're talking about because, you know, I've really mastered more than you think I have. Don't you know what I've been through? You know what I mean? The defense is automatically gone. It's the same thing that happens, by the way, whenever you get 10 compliments and one person who says, yeah, I'm not sure. What do you focus on? It's the one thing. It's the, it's the aberrant person. It, really, if it affects something that is core to your identity because we love our sin too much and we clutch uh, too tightly to them, to sins, because they give us temporary consolation or they give us a sense of solidity or whatever it is, and if somebody points that out, it will not be received warmly. So they could do the John the Baptist style <laughs> you know, or the Ethan Magnus style, but either way, like it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good because it's, it's a harsh word when we have to give up something that we, that we love, um, even if it's um, damaging us. Um, I had a friend who realized this, by the way, in a very acute way because he took a Sunday school class with J.I. Packer. Do you, you know who that is? Yeah. So J.I. Packer, very fancy pants, Canadian Anglican theologian who uh, was teaching this Christian education class. And, um, and, and my friend was a graduate student who attended that class. Now, J.I. Packer is one of the most genteel, sweet uh, men you could ever meet. Uh, my friend, who was a graduate student, was not. And let's just say he was a little combative in class, and it was really his goal to school J.I. Packer on theology. But, I mean, not the brightest idea in the world, but that's, that was his, you know, he thought that was his crusade. And also to correct people whom he regarded as simple, uh, and also to interrupt the elderly, during the discussion, and anyway, after a few classes, J.I. Packer, the, the gentleman's gentleman, came up to my friend, who was the graduate student, and said uh, unto him, you, young man, are harsh and rude. You have no idea how to treat people, and I am disinviting you from my class. Uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm disinviting you from my class. And you're not welcome here anymore. You can come to church, but you're not coming to the class. And my friend uh, told me later, how would you like to be me? The only person that J.I. Packer has ever excommunicated from a Sunday school class. And I said, well, what did it do to you? He said, well, it put me into a complete tailspin because I always thought that I was righteous because I was smart. 
I always thought because I, I didn't hook up with people and I didn't uh, do cocaine and I had never been in rehab and, you know, I didn't steal, that I was a decent person. And I learned that I was not, that I was a proud, arrogant, vicious, dark-hearted, calcified human being who needed to be broken by J.I. Packer. By the way, uh, that harsh call to repentance woke him up, sobered him. He's a very different man now because of what happened. Um, And I want you to note that John's harsh language in this passage didn't make everybody run away. I mean, some people did, and they wanted him dead, but not everybody. It made a lot of people ask questions about their lives, hard questions. And so I think when the Spirit is working, even when we hear a harsh word of of uh, repentance, when the Spirit is working, we become inquisitive rather than defensive. Like maybe they're onto something. So that's point one. The call to repentance is often a harsh call. Point two, the call to repentance is a specific call. And uh, this is verse 10 in your bulletins. I invite you to follow along. This is when the crowd started being inquisitive. The crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. It's a specific call. He's giving specific instructions regarding specific sin patterns or specific temptations that specific groups tend to deal with. And, you know, sin is an odd thing because it is, on the one hand, completely universal, and on the other hand, completely specific to you, right? So it's universal because human nature is evenly distributed. Everybody's got got, um, the condition of Adamness, right, that we are fallen beings with fallen proclivities, Uh, At the same time, your story is your story, and your intricate sin pattern is different than mine and mine different than yours. Uh, Well, John is very interested here in specifics. So he says to the hoarders and stockpilers, you need to start giving your stuff away. And he says to the mafia dons of his day, the tax collectors, you need to stop skimming to get rich and be content as a middle-class person. And he says to the soldiery at the time. We don't know if they were Jewish soldiers or Roman. Uh, You need to stop abusing people because you have temporary power that you lord over others. You need to stop that right away. Don't abuse people. And be content with the money you've got instead of ripping people off or stealing their stuff. In other words, John's demand is that uh, repentance has to manifest itself. You have to bear some fruit, meaning it's really not enough to feel sad for three minutes. Now, feeling sad for three minutes is really great, but it's not enough. And you know this, by the way, if you have somebody in your life who is compulsively damaging, it's actually not enough that they feel sorry for three minutes and say, well, I'm sorry. (laughs) Not good enough. Not good enough, because what you want and what I want is for somebody to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, show me a little bit. You say, you say that you know you shouldn't spend so much. So how about you cut up the credit card right now? I'll get the scissors, right? You say you need to stop drinking because it leads to all your rage issues. Well, maybe we should throw out all the liquor in the house. I mean, you say you say that you need to pay more attention to your family and stop, lo- stop looking at your darn cell phone all the time. How about you put it in your office until 
the night is through and dinner's over and the kids are in bed, right? I'm not, uh, by the way, saying any of that. La- that last one has nothing to do with me ever. That's not my life. I've never struggled with that or really much of anything else. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I love how you laugh because you know it's ridiculous. Um, but but this is, this is John's point. He says, if you really want to square with your life, you have to get specific. You really do. You have to deal with your sin pattern. And I think um, repentance requires that kind of honesty regarding specific sin. And I think we fail to do this in two ways. I think we fail to get specific in two ways, and here they are. Uh, First, uh, when it comes to sin, we like being general. We like being general because it gets us off the hook. It neutralizes the offense. Uh, And there's a place for general confession. We do that in the liturgy. We all say the same prayer with general categories, and that's appropriate because we're all in unison claiming before God that we have a fallen condition that has infected us all. So Cranmer, the author of the prayer book, wrote a prayer that legitimately every Christian can say every single Sunday, and that's appropriate. It's also appropriate to confess and own up to individual particulars of your own condition and makeup. Uh, otherwise, you really nullify the need for righteousness because you say dumb things and I say dumb things like, well, we're all sinners, we're all broken, we're all lost, we all make mistakes. And that's just a coverall to say that really it's not a big deal when sometimes it really, really, really is a big deal. Uh, maybe you've had this happen when, uh, when you have a crisis on, the, on a committee and there's one bonehead on the committee that makes everybody's lives miserable And that person needs to be confronted. And you have the courage to confront them with love and charity and boldness and a little bit of zeal. And you do it. And then they absolutely explode. Everybody has a meltdown. And then some person who's hyper uh, discombobulated when it comes to conflict comes to you and says, now, look, I think we all just need to settle down. And really, I think everybody's at fault, buddy. Meaning you're just as much at fault as the person who made the committee a mess in the first place. That is bad dynamics, friends. That's really unhealthy. It's really unhealthy because it scrubs away the need for righteousness, for justice. It just, it just is like this least common denominator thing where everybody's just, everybody's broken. Of course everybody's broken, but not everybody is equally active in their brokenness in every single situation, right? So it's okay to examine yourself, but it's also okay to notice when behavior is really dark. Abusers, by the way, do this all the time. It's a complete tell of abusers. Abusers do this. Like, So if there's somebody in, in your family who says, look, yeah, I get carried away sometimes, and sometimes I get really angry, and I know I act out of that anger, and I shouldn't do that, and did I hit you? Did I? I don't remember that. Yeah, well, you know, but I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it had you not gotten that attitude with me that you always get, and I can't stand it, and you know I can't stand it, and yet you still did it anyway. So really, in a way, it's your fault too. No. No, th- that ain't going to fly. That's evil. That's evil logic, right? Uh, Those two things are not commensurate. And so I think we have to really be um, serious about dealing with specific sins when they arise uh, within us and within others. The other thing that we do is um, to get rid of the notion of specific sin or to back out of it is to confess sin that isn't our sin, but it's more palatable to confess certain sins than others. 
This is really big right now. So I was reading this tweet, because whenever I want to be depressed, I, I read them. Um, and uh, I read this tweet from a 19-year-old freshman in a college, uh, in a college that is not local, um, who, who tweeted this, I apologize to everyone for my whiteness. Okay, so this 19-year-old may, in fact, how do I know, have been in some ways um, infected uh, with a, a racist strain of sin. That can easily happen. People can be like that. Or they could have been unwittingly supportive of some sort of system in place that put down people of a particular race. I have no idea. But that sentiment, I'm hearing it more and more these days. And here's what I'm, what I'm thinking. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes it becomes rather in vogue to confess slash atone for certain sins because that public confession is a way to gain some social credibility or capital. Like, if I bleed publicly over this particular thing about which I'm not really guilty, it makes me seem more kind of in the flow or in the stream of life right now, in line with the zeitgeist. Um, but I think that's very dangerous to fictionally confess sins that really aren't ours. Instead, what John is asking us to do is confess real sin, not fake sin, to really own up to what our own sins are rather than confessing other seemlier sins. Because when we confess seemlier sins, there's no healing for us. Because it's not real. God wants the real you. Like, not the fictitious, theatrical you, you know? The performer you, but the real one. And so this is the... This is why, by the way, our tradition does the rite of confession, because it's very important to get specific at times, especially if you have a hang-up that you keep going back to, right? Pentecostals would say, you need to give it utterance. I love that, by the way. Give it utterance. Like, name it. Say what it is. Because, friends, when you do that in front of a person who's calm and loving and can promise you the absolution of God and the mercy and love of heaven that is yours, it's like holy magic. It's very freeing on the inside. But get specific. The call to repentance is a specific call. So it's harsh, it's specific, and the call to repentance is a consequential call. A consequential call. This is what it says in verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I think that we uh, are seeing quite clearly John's portrait of the Messiah. He sees the Messiah as an arsonist, as a fire starter, as justice incarnate. Kind of a combination of George Patton and Inspector Javert and Batman. All at the same time. Uh, and John's idea is that when justice incarnate arrives in Gotham, um, we have to make sure that we are clean enough in order to be acceptable to him. Shows John's position, if I can put it rather curtly, is this. Stand in my water or bathe in his fire. Right? So we, you, have to, you have to prepare yourself by bathing yourself and getting pure before that fire comes. In other words, John sees his job as of ultimate consequence. I am prepping you to meet God Almighty and don't think, don't think that you're somehow going to escape that great gathering one day. 
the, the great throne of heaven. There's no other way around it. You're going to face God. You might not believe in God, and that's really cute. Or you might think that, that really, that there's no, like, there's really no righteousness, that there's no justice, no standard. That's really cute that you think that, but that doesn't matter because it's still real, whether you believe in it or not. And so you have to cope with that at some point and grapple with it. He's here for, <clears throat> for sort of the ultimate con- consequential um, beckoning. He wants you to deal with God. I was watching this amazing episode, by the way, of ER. Remember it? George Clooney, ER? Yeah, uh, from yesteryear. Well, there's this wonderful scene in a hospital, of course, where there's this old veteran who had committed war crimes earlier in his life, and he is visited by a, a new chaplain who tends to be from a more the- not politically, theologically liberal strain. And it's a fascinating discourse between this war criminal and this uh, a slightly dippy chaplain. And this is how it goes. Um, The chaplain says, I think sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than simply to let guilt go. Maybe you need a new reason to go on in life rather than your guilt driving you. The man looks incredulous. He says, I don't want to go on. I'm old. I have cancer. I'm dying. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just terrified about what's happening next. What happens next to me? And she asked him, well, what do you think that is? He responded, well, you tell me. You're the chaplain. What does God want from me? Well, she says, I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. And he gets very angry. and He says, wait a minute. So I, I, I could do anything, and it's fine? Like, what I've done is fine? I can kill, and I can rape, and I can torture, and it's all okay? because of some new age dippy spirituality? Is that what you're telling me? Because all I'm hearing is some one one size fits all crap. He says, no, you need to leave. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real heaven and a real hell. I need answers and all of your uncertainties are only making things worse. I need to find someone who will look at me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I'm running out of time. I think John the Baptist would love this guy, by the way. Um, but I think this man was on to something, and I think John was on to something, that meeting God rightly is of the highest consequence because we are more than corpuscles and muscle tissue and cells and memories. You're a living, eternal soul. And you were meant for something bigger. You were meant to reattach. You were meant to rebond to your source. Now, here's the thing, though. Here's the one thing John the Baptist didn't realize, but he couldn't have, by the way. I don't blame him at all. He couldn't have realized about his fire Messiah, his arsonist from heaven, is that it was, in fact, his intention to bring the fire. But that fire was not going to consume you, and it was not going to consume me. Instead, that Messiah would offer his own body on the cross to be the lightning rod of heaven's wrath. He would say, I want to take it. I don't want them to take it. I want to take it. And that's what he did for you and me. John didn't know that, but you do. You do know that. That sin was in fact consumed because he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. But John was right that we need to meet God rightly. But Jesus is the only one who can make us ready to meet God. Okay, so... Harsh call, specific call, consequential call, and lastly, the call to repentance is good news. It's good news. 
This is what it says in verse 18. I think it's a funny passage. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. I think that's funny because we just read what John said. I don't know if it sounds that great. He called you sort of a devotee of Satan, or hinted at it, called you a bunch of snakes, told you you had to give up your sin, said you had to out yourself in public, humiliate yourself and get baptized, turn or burn kind of message. Doesn't sound like great news, right? But, but, John's ministry does have several gilded linings. Here are a few. There are five of them, but I'm going to tell you what they are in one minute. One, his view presupposes that there is a God who cares about and requires righteousness and justice. And by the way, if you've been severely wronged or abused in life, you want righteousness too. Point two, everyone is held accountable and nobody gets away with anything. That is also good news. Point three, our own doom is not presupposed, but God wants to rebond with us and sent John for that purpose. Point four, forgiveness is in fact possible. We can be rescued from the overwhelming justice of heaven. That's why John gave baptism to us. Point five, the Messiah really will come and fix the world, and his coming means that things will finally and definitively be sorted out. Those are all bits of good news. Now, there was even better news to come, and that better news would arrive because of the Messiah for whom John prepared the way. But it is good news to be shaken up and to be prepped for a Messiah who came to love you in the midst of your sin and who didn't wait until you got clean enough to love. So I'm going to end us on a sweet note today, a tender note. Believe it or not, it is Gaudete Sunday, which is the third Sunday in Advent, which means joy, which I think is funny because it's always paired with this passage, joy. But I want to close with a word about cleansing. I think most of us, if we're honest, don't feel clean. We feel gross. We feel burdened by pollution. We feel like, you know, we have to hide a lot of things. And we're untidy and we're like the fan of the opera, you know, always wearing a mask, hiding away. But here's a, a, a word about cleansing. And this word comes to us from a, a book of black and white photographs taken at the Brownsville Revival in Florida from the 1990s. Now, these photographs were taken by a Jewish atheist photographer named Stephen Katzman. And the book is beautiful. It's filled with people who are experiencing forgiveness and real repentance, sort of gut-level Christianity. And at the end of the book, the photographer writes about his own experience regarding what he himself encountered at Brownsville. This is an extended quotation, but every uh, word is platinum. This is what the author writes. During the minister's sermon at Brownsville that night, entitled Die Right, great title, I began to reflect upon my own life. I hadn't believed in God in a long time, maybe because of what my rabbi told me, that God only exists in a man's heart when he was totally pure. I realize I may have misunderstood the rabbi, but I was 18 years old, going through a personal hell, fathering a child whom I still don't know to this day, and the rabbi's words had nothing to offer me, and I left the synagogue forever. I then survived two broken marriages and met Sharon, my third wife of 16 years. I would like to think I learned something from falling down and getting up along the way, but what about all the other people that I had hurt? I was not ready or prepared to meet my maker, let alone believe in one. As the pastor's sermon continued, I was overcome with emotion, grief, and pain. I started to scream. 
My screams of despair suddenly became one with the congregation, and I became the lost soul in my own photographs. And then there was an altar call. I could barely see the young man who came up to me and asked if I wanted to kneel before Christ because the mucus was pouring from my nose, tears splattering off the camera. I was asked to accompany someone to what they called the bloodline, a red strip of tape on the sanctuary floor symbolizing Calvary. Oh, so good. So I went with the man to the bloodline muttering yes. Up until then, I was unable to forgive those who had hurt me the most. But kneeling at the bloodline, I raised my hands above my head and suddenly Tracy, my first wife and the mother of my son, comes through me. I am forced down to the carpet. Who slammed me to the floor with such force? Where did Tracy come from? Then suddenly, oh God, help me. Now my sister is there laying in my gut. Where the hell did she come from? I thought she was gone and buried deep inside my mind. Another scream and I hit the carpet. Who is next? Who is next? Who must I forgive to be free of this torment? And then in a flash, his face comes to me. Justin, my son, whom I raised until I kicked him out of the house at age 16. Justin, who carries my birthright and the birthright of my ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I scream and I scream again until I can't scream anymore. And then there's silence. And I suddenly realized that an immense weight had been lifted from my shoulders. Three times I found my forehead pinned to that carpet, begging for forgiveness by three people who had deeply impacted my life. The cleansing had an immediate impact on me. And through this healing process, I realized that my journey was now far different than the one I had originally embarked upon. Well, that's not just Stephen Katzman. That's every person in this room. It's all of us. There we are with him kneeling at the bloodline where our lives are freely justified before a holy, sacred God. There at that bloodline, we are clean and beautiful and prepped and ready to meet God without a hint of fear. For God is great and the limits of his mercy have not been set. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your breath.